Hello and welcome to Bob Dylan American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records by me, Rich Evans. And me, Mark Walsh. This is the podcast where we take a week or two to re-listen to each of Bob Dylan's officially released albums and then we get together to reassess them one at a time. This time we're up to Highway 61 Revisited, which was released in August 1965. Now, Rich, I tend to start these by asking you how familiar you were with the record uh, before we started listening to it again this week. But I have got a feeling that this week that might be a superfluous question, but I'll, uh, I'll hand it over to you again. Yes, probably is a bit of a superfluous question. This is my first Bob Dylan album, essentially. I had read the Anthony Scaduto book beforehand. My local library when I was a kid had that book. And so I'd read all about Dylan. And in particular, what I really was fascinated with was the early days in New York, actually, the kind of itinerant folk singer. And and then I listened to this record and it was all electric and like nothing I'd ever heard before. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, and so as a result, yeah, I'm very, very familiar with it. What about you, Mark? What's your story with this one? Yeah, much the same. Um, I hadn't read anything about Bob Dylan before hearing this one, but I had heard his greatest hits, as I talked about a few episodes ago. And then I thought, well, you know, this guy seems like he's worth my time. So I'll, I'll go out and listen to some more records of his. And I'd like to say that I then got in touch with all my really cool hip friends and they recommended which record I should go and listen to. But it wasn't quite like that. We had a book in my house, which was called something like The 1000 Greatest Albums of All Time. And I, I'm, not sh- I'm not sure why we had it exactly. But I considered this to be the absolute Bible, the definitive truth of what were the 1,000 greatest records of all time. Of course, I subsequently discovered that actually there were many other lists and there would be many, many further lists in the future. But I, I definitely thought this was, this was the thing. So anytime I discovered a new artist who had a, a back catalogue that went back beyond about 1993 or four, whenever this book was released, I'd go to the list of records and I'd put my thumb on the list and I'd just go down till I found the first album by them and I'd go out and try and listen to that one and for Bob Dylan I didn't have to go very far down the list because at number two was uh, Highway 61. I don't know if you want to have a guess Rich what number one would have been in this book from 1993 or 1994. Uh, Blood on the Tracks? No it was actually not a Bob album although he did have Blonde oh, sorry. on Blonde. sorry right I see it was it wasn't just Bob albums okay uh, oh, Pet no. Sounds maybe? Sergeant Pepper? That was number three. Pepper was number one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you okay. see, so that, that was what we were dealing with. And so I went out and I, I went to uh, John Menzies on uh, Newcastle High Street, Newcastle Underlime High Street. And I picked up Highway 61 Revisited and Blood on the Tracks because they didn't have Blonde on Blonde. And the next one down was Blood on the Tracks. So I picked up those two records for a grand total of four quid, which I still think is the, the greatest bit of business I ever did in my life. Bought them home. And yes, Highway 61 was like nothing I'd ever heard before. Totally blew me away. It's incredible, isn't it? Because the the idea of that you mentioned about you didn't immediately go out and tell all of your friends. I completely discovered Bob in isolation as a teenager. And I think that was what was so mind blowing about it. It wasn't like now where you can have everything at the touch of a button on um, on streaming services. You actually had to go out and find these things. <laughs> Any kids listening, I, I doubt that's our demographic here somehow, but <laughs> that's how things used to be. And, and so it was amazing. And, and I, I knew I couldn't talk to my mates about this kind of stuff because they were listening to the, the kind of hits of the day, as it were. So I really felt like I'd stumbled on something astonishing with this, with this record. And the fact that it just sounded so out there, I think 
completely uh, added fuel to those flames, really. Yeah, we've talked about this before, haven't we? But the fact that it was so difficult to get hold of these things, even in the very um, banal sense of having to leave your house and go and find the things physically, it did make a big difference. And you're right. I mean, it sounds ludicrous to say it, doesn't it? But discovering Bob Dylan felt like a special thing. I mean, possibly the most iconic artistic figure of the 20th century. And I was able to feel like I discovered him myself. Um, I, I don't know if people can still feel that these days. I hope they do, but I'm sure it's a lot harder. Um, but, but, but yeah, that, that's, that, that's, uh, that's my story with the record. And, and of course, it's been the one that I've gone back to over and over and over again in the decades since. And I'm, I'm sure it's the same for you, Rich. Yeah, very much so. This, this has been pretty evergreen. I mean, you kind of dip in and out of Bob Dylan, obviously. I think just going back to your previous point, though, the, the, the time that I was discovering Bob, he was, he was really rather uncool. I mean, he wasn't making, he wasn't making records uh, or, 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 or particularly notable new records, and, and people were kind of regarding him as a, as a bit of a has-been, really. And, and so that, that also added, I think, to the mystique and the allure of this, of this particular record. So what about the, the, the kind of background then, Mark? Because you're the... You're the guy in the know when it comes to when it comes to this kind of stuff. What what's the uh, what's the sort of brief history of the record as as is? Yeah, well, I mean, this was recorded in June and July 1965, wasn't it? Um, and it eventually came out in the August. And just that is um, is quite remarkable from today's perspective. That an album would come out so quickly as that. But I think it's just that thing that we were talking about last week, isn't it? It's the the sheer velocity of his career at this point. So he'd put out Bringing It All Back Home in March, I think it was. He was off to England, the small matter of filming Don't Look Back while he was there. At some point after that, he writes Like a Rolling Stone. He's into the studio, inventing rock. Has a little bit of a break in recording where he plays the Newport Folk Festival. And I think it was Forest Hills, wasn't it? And then he comes back, finishes off the record, puts it out. And um, yeah, jobs are good and really, isn't it? It's still mind-blowing, isn't it, that people were working that fast and that he was able to produce so much material in such a short space of time. But also that he was doing all of these other iconic things. I mean, yes, he was a genius, but there must have been something in the air as well that was kind of facilitating this because just the sheer pace is absolutely astonishing. I mean, I, I, I kind of can't get over it, really. And, of course... It's not like these days when bands or certain bands certainly take an awfully long time in the studio and then they'll kind of go out for a little bit on tour and then everything is incredibly organised. It just felt like flitting from thing to thing. And yet this album is just testament to how well that worked, really. Absolutely. Well, speaking of the album, that's what we're here to talk about. We did think we'd try something a little bit different this time, and we'll go through it song by song. There are only nine songs on this album, and let's be honest, they probably all deserve um, a little bit of individual attention. So we'll kick off with that uh, little-known collector's item, Like a Rolling Stone. Do you want to get us started, Rich? Yeah, I mean, this is... I mean, it's a belter, isn't it? I mean, the very fact that you've got that pistol crack of the snare right at the start, it kind of announces something totally different really one can only imagine how astonishing it must have been to to kind of hear this uh, blasting out on the radio at the time I mean because it had this effect on me when I first heard it and it still it still feels fresh now I think that's the astonishing thing about it it's still got this I mean it's it's tempting to say there's never been anything kind of before or since that quite lived up to this Um, it's so unique in so many ways 
Absolutely. Um, and there's no shortage of people who've testified in the decades since that hearing that for the first time was almost like a JFK moment for so many people, almost changing their lives in a literal sense. But it, 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 it's so interesting, isn't it? We talked last time about subterranean homesick blues just coming in from another solar system and, and kicking off that record in such a, a unique and, and, and instantly arresting way. Well, he's just outdone himself again, hasn't he? I agree. I mean, you know, it, it sounds silly to talk about this as the greatest opening track in rock album history, because actually you're talking about possibly the greatest song in rock history, aren't you? And the greatest performance, possibly. But um, I, I wanted to just dig into that a little bit, Rich, because I suppose one of the things people often say is that this was not only the greatest rock song, but possibly the first rock song. And and, and we, as we say, we, it was so arresting for so many people when we first heard it. What do you think the elements are that make it so um, arresting and so unique then and now? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, there are those people who basically said that this, this kick-started the 60s. This was the moment when, when everything changed. I mean, I think the production, and we'll talk a little bit more about the production slightly later on, is amazing. I think it's, you're absolutely right to mention the performance, though. I mean, there is, on the Bootleg series, there is a version of this which is piano-driven but doesn't feature the Hammond organ. And um, it's kind of done in three, four times. So it's like a waltz. and it it just doesn't sound anywhere near as, as, as kind of captivating as, as, as the version that was recorded. I mean, it, it's difficult. I, I mean, we, we call this podcast Bob Dylan American Shakespeare, and I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and, and try and uh, kind of crowbar a bit of the immortal bard in here. But if we, think about, if, if we think about Shakespeare, I mean, he arguably wrote two utterly original plays, one of which was The Tempest, and one of which was Love's Labour's Lost. And what he was a genius at was taking all of the elements from all of the rest of theatre and performance art and comedy, um, etc., and kind of mishmashing them, everything that worked. So he kind of had all of the best bits and he'd reshape them and he'd, he'd make something seemingly new, but that all built on a lot of existing um, good stuff that was out there. And I think in many respects, that's why he endures so much, because he took all the best bits and, and, and we can kind of continually revisit it as a result. And I think that's kind of what Bob Dylan's doing here, because this is undoubtedly incredibly original. But if you distill it down to its elements, I mean, arguably, you've got stream of consciousness here. I don't know. I've never figured out exactly what this song is about. And I don't know whether I want to really I don't think it, it matters necessarily I, I mean Virginia Woolf for example was doing stream of consciousness before this in terms of really rather abstract and bizarre poetry you of course had Arthur Rambo you had Kerouac and Ginsberg as well doing this and so there's elements of them in there I also think I mean you've got the the Beatles are, are around at this point in time and the tambourine is pretty prevalent I mean I know in the early 60s certainly and mid 60s tambourines were used quite a lot because recording of cymbals wasn't actually very it was kind of in its infancy and so that's why tambourines were used so much so you've got that quite prominent in there and then of course you've got the Hammond organ which as we've said on the waltz version that's on the bootleg series Without the Hammond organ, it's kind of half the song. But Bob Dylan was not the first artist to use uh, Hammond organ, obviously. And I think it's, it's, it's important to kind of almost recognise that the fact that the animals had had that monster hit with House of the Rising Sun. So there was a link there anyway. I mean, Alan Price 
the Hammond player from the from the uh, animals was 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 friendly with Bob Dylan for a while. And so what I think he's done is he's taken all of these amazing elements, he's mashed them together. And uh, what's the word? Synergy, isn't it? It's when something is, is, is bigger than the sum of its parts. And I think you've absolutely got that in this instance. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I was kind of wondering to myself while listening to it again, how new that, that organ sound was. Because you're right, it, 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 it does appear previously, of course. But you're right, I suppose what makes it so spectacular in this song is the juxtaposition with the rest of it. I hadn't thought of that before, so yeah, I'll, I'll give you credit for that one. Um, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm, sure but, I'm not the first person to think that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also such a great part, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's just simply beautifully played and performed. Um, and it's, it, it, it draws a lot of strength just from the performance too, doesn't it? But yeah, I, I think that's right. And the other thing is that Dylan himself at the time, if we can believe what he said to friends and journalists around the time, was quite clear that just the writing of the song was something new for him. It was, it was a new direction. And like you say, he had this um, almost stream of consciousness thing going on. I mean, what did he say? He said he had the 20 pages of vomit that he eventually edited down to the song, didn't he? Which does feel a little bit like the way someone like Kerouac would have been working. But I think it's, it's so interesting that he's, he's done that. And then from there, he goes on, doesn't he? Almost everything else on Highway 61 seems to flow from this new style of writing that he's got. And actually on into Blonde on Blonde as well, I think, although obviously that's the next time but this this this, this very distinct style that, of writing that that now takes over and like a rolling stone is for the kickstarter so i suppose in the same way but it's it opened so many other people's minds it was almost doing the same thing for dylan himself as a as a writer and as an artist i guess yeah, yeah but I, I was struck by something sorry, sorry it's just i was just struck by something you said a moment ago where you were saying that some of the other versions are are, are not so so um so striking, <laughs> but, but uh, to say the least. And, and I, I did also wonder, listening back this time, whether this was something that was really just almost entirely down to that kind of chance co- coalescence of the, the musicians, the time of day, whatever it was that was in the air that brought it all together. If they'd come back on another day, would we not even have ever had this performance in the way that we've actually got it now? It's difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, this is this feels like a, a lightning in the bottle kind of moment, really. I mean, this was obviously done live in the studio. And I think that there's something, the immediacy comes across it because you've got that, I, what you just said there about him kind of having discovered this new way of writing. I think you can feel the energy and the excitement kind of coming off that because, I mean, it was almost like turning on a tap seemingly and then his ideas are pouring out. And I think what we have is i mean yeah you've got this this band that, that that are really really in tune with what he's wanting to do and if we're if we're to believe it i mean al cooper had never played the hammond organ before he just kind of started playing along and i mean it's one of the iconic kind of hammond organ parts kind of ever really and so yeah it, it's the world would be a much poorer place for if, if they hadn't have all been in the studio at that point in time but I think so much of it is performance and he allegedly hadn't finished the lyrics properly um, when he went into the studio so again there's that freshness and there's that excitement and I think that's it's kind of real again a kind of testament of that recording live and recording with all of the musicians there and kind of feeding off of of whatever it is that they're kind of putting in as their own ingredients. I mean, I've said before, I never really figured out what this song is about. I don't think I ever really want to figure out what this song is about. I like the, the mystery of it. Um, what about you, Mark? Have you got a kind of uh, a sort of interpretation? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I guess I agree with uh, what most people 
think is the interpretation that you've got this in at least in the beginning quite a sneering put down song but you know very very much aimed at somebody who's all of a sudden out of their comfort zone out of their bubble and in an unfamiliar and possibly hostile environment but as other people have also said i do think that as you listen to it again and again and as the verses unfold there, there there becomes a sort of softer side to it which is soft is the wrong word i guess but it's it's a, it's a kind of it's also a song which is pointing the way towards freedom um liberation from things that perhaps have been trapping you even if you hadn't realized they were and i think it's incredibly powerful and, and i agree with you that i don't know what the point of a siamese cat or the diplomat, or the Chrome Wars, or any of that is—I I have absolutely no idea. But it doesn't matter somehow. It's still that core message gets carried through, and it's—it's it's almost euphoric, I think, in, when you get to the chorus. I, I read—I read something years ago, and I really, really wanted to find it again ahead of recording this. I thought it was in No Direction Home, and it—it it, it might be, but I, I couldn't find it. And one author somewhere had said that this is a song that is so familiar to so many people but it's only finally understood in a moment of adult crisis. And I remember that line because I just thought it sounded cool when I first read it as, a, as an adolescent. But then this actually happened to me much, much later. I was driving along. I had this on a compilation tape or CD or whatever it was, and it, was, it just came on while I was driving along. I was at the lowest point in my life I'd ever been for, for all sorts of reasons. And it was just bang again, just in the same way that it amazed me when I was 17. It amazed me again at 32 or however old I was, just with that fresh interpretation and that sense of all this crap is going on, but the road's in front of you, it's open, and it's still for you to make of life what you're going to make of it. And I'll, I'll pause there before I start tearing up. But um, <laughs> yes, that's definitely my interpretation of it. Well, it's, it's, the, it's yeah, I mean, I think it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, you've got this, it's a song that you can ascribe meaning to. And I mean, obviously, you've ascribed meaning to it generations i mean certainly that 60s generation they saw it as a call to arms in many respects i mean it was it was this was the the kind of countercultural soundtrack this was the anti vietnam even though that was only kind of in its infancy really before it really escalated this was the civil rights movement this was everything kind of all mished and mashed up together and it it kind of works, doesn't it? I mean, you can kind of ascribe your own meaning. So millions, millions of people have um, have ascribed meaning to it. Um, I, I have I ploughed my own furrow here by ascribing <laughs> no meaning to it whatsoever. But there we go. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's one of the things that keeps coming back on this album, doesn't it? And I think we'll probably touch on it more with some of the songs later on. But even where you can't ascribe meaning, it doesn't matter at all. It's got that emotional connection, hasn't it? And that emotional depth to it, uh, which you either get or you don't. And this is part of the reason why so many people have a problem with Dylan, I guess, because they can't get past the voice and they've never had that moment where for whatever reason, whatever combination of personal experience, currents in the air, whatever it might be at the time of listening to it, they've never had that initial connection. And that's, you know, that's fine. That's, that's, that's the way it goes, isn't it? But for those of us that have been lucky enough to have it, my goodness, it's, uh, it's a yeah. powerful thing, isn't it? I'm, I'm going to do another kind of shout out here for his voice again. I think his voice on this is a, is a fantastic instrument. And I also think it's much better recorded than it has been to date, really. I do like how it's recorded on The Times They're Changing. But I think that 
there's more subtlety on this record. There's more nuances. I think it's, I mean, the, the, the different kind of tones that he gets out of it, I think are really, are really quite, quite clear and quite prevalent. And I think it's, it's quite interesting to, to, to almost hear the different characters that he's able to put across on this. And so once again, I'm going to go ahead and say that anyone that thinks that he uh, can't sing should listen to this record. And uh, I will call them a, a liar, but there we go. <laughs> do we want to, do we want to move on? Do you want to talk uh, Tombstone Blues then? or have we got? Have... I think, I think we do. Yeah. Let's, let's move on. So obviously this follows on in the sequence of the album, but it also uh, was been, I think the, the next song that he recorded or the next song that he wrote, certainly it flows on from like a Rolling Stone in, in that way too. We're going to say this a lot, aren't we? But I've always loved this song, but listen to it again this time. I did start thinking that this is, we, we were talking just now, weren't we, about how people who don't get on with Dylan have a certain view of Dylan. And one of, one of the things that they say is that he can't sing. But I suppose the other side of it is that he's very parodable. Par- parody-able, if that's a word. And this, this, this song is the first one of those kind of mid-60s, slightly psychedelic, slightly surreal songs, packed full of characters, dropped in, perhaps at random, perhaps not. That if you were going to try and write a parody, it'd be quite easy to do so, wouldn't it? But I think clearly it's, 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 that's not what he's done. He's, he's constructed something that, that works in a different way from any of his other songs that he'd been writing previously. And I think this is, this is why it flows on from Like a Rolling Stone. It's a product of this new method or this new um, streak of inspiration that he's got. And I was, I was trying to think about it while I was listening to it again this time. And I think you've got songs that are at least equally dense and difficult in the sense that the images are disturbing or impenetrable. Obviously, we talked about Gates of Eden last time. I'm on record as saying I find it difficult to listen to Hard Rain as well. But this is different, I think. And I don't know, what, do you agree, Rich? And what do you think it might be about this song that's, that's pointing in a slightly different direction? Well, you're going to laugh at this. But when I first heard this, I think I was probably 14 or so. And I... I was quite a literal 14-year-old, I've realised, because I didn't know much about Bob Dylan, and I had read the Scuduto book. There's an aspect of this that I thought was almost a bit autobiographical on the part of Bob, in as much as um, Mum's in the factory, she's got no shoes, Daddy's in the alley, he's looking for food. And I, I was thinking that maybe he, he was actually a product of this impoverished kind of upbringing, whereas, of course... The truth is so far removed from that, um, with his kind of middle-class Jewish upbringing in Minnesota. That, um, so I think that always kind of skewed me. It was the, it was the chorus that, that got me. That was the thing that really stuck when I was a kid, certainly. I mean, I love the imagery in this. I mean, the, the whole thing about the reincarnation of Paul Revere's horse, um, that the town has no need to be nervous. I mean, it's glorious and absolute, possibly nonsensical madness, on the other hand. But it, it works because there's nothing that you can never get bored with this song because any time that you listen to it and i think this is the beauty of it and i think this is what kind of points it in a different direction you you've moved away from any sense of narrative here really it's just like a, you're being bombarded with all of these images and i think every time that i listen to this there's something different there's something that i think well i hadn't really thought about that before or what does he mean um at this moment in time and i, I love this i love how ambiguous it is really as, as well as the sound of, of it because this is more hard-edged isn't it this is far more hard-edged than like a rolling stone this is kind of it's got i suppose it's a it's a blue shuffle of sorts really and so it's kind of yeah it's, i mean who would who 
who did this before him, really? Who did anything like this before this song? I don't think anyone has. And so in terms of new directions, yeah, definitely, in virtually every aspect of this, I think. Definitely. Uh, interesting that you say that about how you interpreted things the first time you heard it. So my background, well, part of my background as a kid is that I was raised uh, in, a, as a, in a Catholic school and I was very familiar with a lot of, of Bible stories. And my goodness, you, you, got, you, you can fill your boots with that here, can't you? We've got John the Baptist. We've got um, the Jawbones, uh, uh, the Philistines. So that was a thing that spoke to me, first of all. But you're right. Every time you hear it, there's something else that comes out, isn't there? And I think this is where I think he is doing something very new from what he'd done previously, because his previous songs had, had, had often had a, a real narrative quality to them, like obviously the most obvious example of his big songs that's like that is Hattie Carroll. But then he'd also obviously really been sitting at the feet of Rimbaud and all that symbolist stuff we've, we've got as early as hard rain and even with gates of eden i think we're still in that vein really but this now is something different it's, it's obviously not a narrative and I, i'm not so sure that it works if you try to dig into it and interpret the images symbolically either in the way that it does on hard rain for sure so i feel it's this is more like the sort of picture song idea where he's he's actually really doing what a painter would do he's using his his words um, to generate tones, to prompt emotions, to allude to things that cast shadows in your mind as you're listening and, and prompt your own cognitive reflections on it. So I, I do think it's something that's totally new, even for him. And I think you're right. I and mean, it's hard to think of anything that was like this that had been out there from anybody else previously. I agree. And I think also we probably shouldn't underestimate the the sounds, if you take this, the sounds of the words which are put together, I mean, this is going to sound gloriously pretentious, but um, if you're taking the sounds of the words, they, he's putting words together which are pretty kind of oxymoronic, for, for want of a better word. They're, they're, they're images and ideas that, that might well mean something, but I think an awful lot of this is the sound of these words and the, the kind of the excitement at language and the way that he's 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 putting ideas and stringing ideas together it's not all just about imagery it's also about uh, sounds and i think that's why it's such a clear uh, example of a performance piece and a performance poem and when you look at it on the page it doesn't have that same power because as you said it's it's kind of a bit impenetrable really <laughs> <laughs> well that's the thing isn't it i mean we will probably talk about this at length again on Blonde on Blonde and, and yes. even on uh, his later albums. But it's that tedious question about whether or not he's a poet. And of course, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because, as you say, so much of it is invested in the performance. And, and of course, it was written in that way. And I think actually wasn't I read something this week. It might have been in one of Clinton Halen's books where he was making the point that it was around this time that, Dylan decided that he didn't need to be a poet or a novelist or anything like that, because actually this was the form that he could express himself in and there was no need to do anything else. And, and I, I, can't, I can't remember now when it, there was another bit somewhere where he was telling Ginsburg that if he, <laughs> he was telling Ginsburg that if he wanted to do it right, he had to sing his poems, which Ginsburg duly did, didn't he, to, to occasionally hilarious effect. Yes. They, um, it, yeah. It, yeah, Gin Ginsberg and singing didn't quite work out as uh, as I think Bob Dylan had, had maybe uh, maybe imagined. But it, it goes back again. I know we, we're making these somewhat spurious links between uh, Dylan and Shakespeare, but 
Shakespearean plays were designed to be performed. I mean, there's any amount of nuances and um, funny moments and slapstick stuff and songs and things that would have been inserted that that time has forgotten about now um, as regards the performance of Shakespeare. And this is this is really what Bob Dylan's doing here, isn't it? I mean, it's all about performance. This is not about poetry on the page, as we've said. This is about the performance. And I think this particular song, Tombstone Blues, is a great performance. I mean, it's a hard-edged performance. It feels pretty raw. It feels incredibly original. I suppose if we're talking about performances, that might be a decent segue into the next song as well. So it takes a lot to laugh. It takes a train to cry. I love this. I love this as a song. I think it's, uh, I mean, we've, we've mentioned the, the idea of it being quite an accomplished performance. What do you think? Musicianship better than on bringing it all back home? I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, the only thing you can say, I think, in, in sort of counterpoint to that is that the production is so much better on this album. So actually, the musicians have got a bit more, a bit more, it's a bit, it's a bit of a fairer deal for musicians, isn't it? They, they get the chance to sound better. But I agree, I agree. I think it is clearly of a higher standard than on bringing it all back home. And, and I know you were particularly keen on the piano throughout this record, but this, this song, the piano is lovely, isn't it? And I think it might be Dylan playing the piano on this one. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm, do you know what? I'm not actually sure, but the piano is. I think that the version, not just of this song, but of the album that I've been listening to has been remastered because it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely just cleaner. I, I, I seem to remember the, the, the taped copy I had as a kid was a little bit more muddy. I mean, that, that's probably unsurprising. But this is definitely, the, the musicianship is, is really, really good. And I think it's, it feels musically like more like a 70s album. You know, in, in the 70s, once they started kind of separating everything and being very, very uh, precise with sounds and stuff like that, I think you kind of have that sort of feel on this one, which is quite interesting. I mean, it is. It's a great, great performance. It's a great song. And I think going back to this idea of the performance, it's probably important to just flag up that there is another version of it on uh, on the Bootleg series, which I don't like. I mean, many people probably probably love but it's uh, it's essentially to the Buick 6 tune which as we will get to is my least favorite moment on this album anyway and so I think taking a song like this and shoving it with that tune it, it just doesn't work in the same way so I think he definitely made the right choice there so he can sleep easy knowing that I agree with what he did <laughs> all of those years ago. Um, I'm sure he's very pleased about that. <laughs> I, 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 I do yeah I do vaguely remember now that you might have even played this was it was it at Newport or Forest Hills? And he did play it in that kind of hard edge style. But it was when he came back that he, he reworked it and, and re-recorded it in this way, which, as you say, I think was definitely the right decision. But it's, it's again, the thing that one of the many things that makes this record so fantastic is that you've gone from that invention of rock, this supreme performance on track one, this hard, hard edged blues shuffle doing something completely new on track two. And now this, I don't know how new this is really, but it's still a hell of a performance and a very, very good song. And you're just, yeah, you're three songs in and you're thinking, well, what else can you show me? This certainly isn't filler, is it? I mean, it's not one of those songs where you think, (laughs) oh yeah, he's chancing his arm here and shoving this one in. I mean, yeah, everything about it. I mean, I find it intensely listenable. I know that that would be a little bit of a ridiculous thing to say, but I mean, the, the, the band are just... Are just on it, aren't they? For 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 all all of these performances, really. Yeah, I mean, we we probably could bang on about this one. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. We've got to save a little bit in the tank for desolation. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> so I don't want to overdo it. But um, yeah, I mean, we, we mentioned uh, from a Buick 6 in as much as, first of all, I'm not that keen on it. And secondly, it really didn't do justice to uh, It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry. But that's the next song on here. I mean, what do you reckon? I mean, I've, I've damned it, really. I think I ought to step back from uh, Buick 6 now and, uh, and, and send step my away from a vehicle. heartfelt and sincere apologies to all of those super fans of, uh, of, of Buick 6 out there. What, what do you reckon? Well, just a very final thought on It Takes a Lot to Laugh. You know, in the outro, the piano is very much the four, and you've got those lovely little um, tinkling bits that uh, just pop up out of the... the um, the instrumentation at the end I remember very clearly and I think this might well have been on tape as well going back and rewinding that over and over again just to hear those three or four piano notes that sort of tinkle in and out and trying to persuade other people that they should do the same and for some reason they weren't receptive to that at all which was quite bizarre <laughs> but yeah I agree with your view of from a Buick 6 I mean it is unquestionably unquestionably fantastic it's a marvellous song, but it's just for, compared to the rest of the stuff on here, it's probably the least involving thing. But I did think this would probably be a good chance to to pick up um, the guitar playing. And um, it's the fellow out of a Butterfield blues band, isn't it? Um, who, had, uh, who, who I think would play at Newport. I don't know if he'd already recorded before Newport or not, but anyway, it's certainly the guy from there, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's Bloomfield, isn't it? And I mean, I really like his playing, actually. I mean, I know that we've, we've been rather down on the song, but I mean, I, I do think that his play, I mean, he was a, they were a blues band. He was a blues guitar player, a very, very good blues guitar player. And I think he's used to, to very good effect, not only on this, but on other songs as well, but certainly on this song. I think it, it sounds, it, it's, what's the word I'm looking for? It's totally appropriate what he's playing for the song um and i think it, it sort of does it justice i mean yeah you're you're right going going back to to this and the song where does it fit i mean this is a bit like on an album like this this is like being a center back in the uh, brazil team in the 1970 <laughs> world cup i mean you can't all be pele uh, for example i mean that that's the trouble no. that you've got here you've got this amazing album and there's always going to be a song that maybe doesn't do when when you're comparing it with other bits and uh, other songs on here it's never going to get quite the reception well, I think that's the test of it, isn't it? Because if you dropped this back on the first side of bringing it all back home, it would be revelatory, wouldn't it? And you really see the leap in the musicianship, the production, the performance even. And Dylan's vocal as well. I mean, it's it's powerful, isn't it? It, it, it kicks ass compared to any of his, his, his vocals on those bluesy songs on side one of bringing it all back home, I think. I don't know if I'm producing him a little bit there, but would you agree with that, Rich? I think... I think that you're right. I mean, I think that the, this is a different style of singing. I mean, it's not, and I think people forget that, don't they? It's not just about the lyrics. It's not just about the band and the fact they've been electric and that the production's improved, but it's about the delivery, isn't it, as well? And I think that this is, it would almost, it wouldn't feel like a different artist, but it would feel like he'd been kind of turbocharged if you'd have shoved this song on, onto uh, the side one of bringing it all back home. Whereas, it sits very, very nicely in the in the kind of mix on, on in, the, in the context of this record, doesn't it? And I think that again, like you say, it just shows how far he's come in such a short time. I mean, it's it's very difficult, really, to think of anyone that's ever kind of progressed with such uh, with such kind of um, velocity, really. Absolutely, and I think we should probably move on to Ballad of a Thin Man. But just reflecting on what you were saying there, people always talk about Dylan's classic 
mid 60s trilogy don't they the electric trilogy which obviously we're now in the middle of but I've, I've tended to think for a while now and i think this process has only reinforced my belief that actually it's this record and blonde on blonde that are siblings and actually bringing it all back home is much closer to another side than it is to the other two and it's only really the electrification that ties it to this one and blonde on blonde yeah i think i'm tempted to agree with you actually because yeah, famously everyone talks about this trilogy and this trilogy is is amazing but you're right there are far more links between um another side and bringing it all back home i mean th- this this is the, well, the the paradigm shift isn't it i suppose is is, is coming into coming into this album this is the, the gloves are off here this is this is right i mean business now i'm uh, i've completely cut any ties i mean for a couple of albums prior to this it's almost like there's this sort of dilly dallying with the folk movement. Oh, I'm I I don't like you anymore. Oh well, I'm I'm going to kind of pay lip service to you. And then by the time you you get onto this, I mean we've mentioned that kind of pistol crack of the snare at the start of uh, like a Rolling Stone. I mean I I see that as a statement of intent. It's like right here we go. This is I can understand why people felt this that song in particular um, kind of kickstarted the sixties. And yeah, I think I think you're right. I think this is where this is where he really moves on. And on that note, we ought to probably move on onto, <laughs> onto that was very smooth, wasn't it? Onto uh, onto Ballad of Thin Man. So yeah, I mean, do you want to do you want to talk us through your your thoughts here on on Ballad of the Thin Man, there, Mark? Well, I did appreciate your truck driver shift there into this song. Um, I was going to go with something almost as subtle, which was when you talked about him meaning business. He's certainly getting down to business here, isn't he? I mean, I think. I, I don't disagree at all with the, the consensus on this song, which is A, that it's unutterably brilliant, and B, that it's this very laser-focused character assassination of a, I suppose, an archetype, really, of, a, of someone who is just completely at a loss in a, in a new environment. And talking about the way albums grow on us and songs grow on us over time, I suppose when I was 17, I would have been very contemptuous of Mr. Jones and also a little bit fearful that I might be Mr. Jones. Whereas now I, I fully embrace the fact that in at least some situations I have been and continue to be Mr. Jones. And it's a very universal experience. <laughs> well, maybe I'm projecting and it is just me, but uh, I, 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 I can certainly see this from both sides now and it's, it's equally powerful. But yeah, I mean, the, the thing that, so, so I suppose the standard interpretation is that he's, he's released all this fantastic music. He's, he's gone to Newport and everyone's booed him uh, journalists are asking him ridiculously silly questions on a regular basis and he's just gone for them and he said okay well you don't get what i'm doing and this is this is you and that works doesn't it of course of course that's that's a perfectly valid interpretation but the one thing i i i discovered listening to it this time which was entirely new to me was this slightly other slightly related slightly different interpretation which is that a lot of it is based around images relating to male homosexuality and transvesticism which had just never crossed my mind before but after i read a throwaway line saying some people think this then it was like oh my god how have i listened to this song for 30 years without ever (laughs) without ever crossing my mind i mean you've got the guy in his high heels for a start and then the phallic imagery which just keeps repeating itself on and on and on so that was an absolute eye-opener for me i'd never thought of it in that way and i don't think it invalidates the other interpretation at all i mean it, it could very well complement it in some ways but just something completely fresh that i'd never never thought about before but then that got me thinking about dylan and the way we see him because of course he was very much 
on the edge of the orbit of Andy Warhol and the factory yeah. and that the, yeah. the, I suppose the beginnings of that kind of um, scene that would end up with the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and Transformer and David Bowie eventually and then this kind of flowering of queer culture in the mainstream I suppose and we don't ever really think of Dylan as being involved in that at all or certainly I hadn't and I don't think he really is actually but he's there at the start of it and it's 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 a new interpretation that I'd never considered before yeah you you put me on the spot now with that interpretation because it's a it's it's pretty much a new one on me as well but I can totally see that there's a lot there that makes sense because yes he was on the orbit of Andy Warhol and of course as you said later on with the Velvet Underground that became I suppose more mainstream certainly I always thought of this I never quite believed and bought the journalist um put down angle of this i always just felt it was much more a case of directed almost at like the the sort of 1950s salary man kind of figure almost the um the that whole thing something is happening but you don't know what it is i mean that is just such an amazing line because you could apply that to uh, an out of time kind of um white collar worker who's um who who's kind of emerged in in the post world war kind of america you could of course it could be directed towards parents if like younger teenagers are listening to this something's happening and you don't know what it is it's it's very kind of accusatory isn't it and i mean there was enough there were enough issues in the early 1960s you could kind of pick and choose from in terms of generational conflict and then i think this is the beauty with dylan and and again We've mentioned why he's so significant culturally along with Shakespeare, why we revisit him and why people will undoubtedly revisit him in centuries time as well, is that I don't think that the meaning is ever set in stone. I mean, there's so many, there's so many other artists. I mean, I, I've just talk, we're talking about two massive kind of cultural touchstones here, but you know, Shakespeare's contemporaries, they were very good, some of them, but it was like the meaning was a lot more fixed of what they were trying to say, I think. And that's why we revisit him, because you can apply his writing to so many different kind of eras, subjects, moments, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's exactly the same with Bob Dylan as well, because this could be a song about so many different things. And so I think, yeah, the, 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 the sexuality interpretation works, doesn't it? Because, I mean, this was, this was the start of a far more kind of permissive, certainly in sort of Greenwich Village and the, the kind of places that Bob Dylan had really been hanging around in as a I suppose I mean he was still very young wasn't he very impressionable so it's just this kind of window into another culture I think it works and I don't think in any way it kind of makes it any kind of less or more powerful I think it it, it it's it's just, it's an interesting interpretation certainly I've I've waffled there without answering any question I realize but never mind over to yeah, you yeah that's that's usually my trick isn't it but no <laughs> Just thinking about what you're saying there, it, 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 that that um, kind of link to to queer culture or or homosexuality and that kind of imagery, it's it, it links to what you were talking about about the, the the other interpretations that you can you can lay onto it because of course it's easy to forget from a 21st century perspective that we were still very much in an era where same-sex relationships were beyond the pale for a lot of polite society. And and I think Dylan did have a role in his in his promotion of of Ginsburg. He's in the video for Subterranean Homesick Blues. He features quite prominently 
on the Rolling Thunder tour and in the you can see that in the Scorsese documentary from a couple of years ago and on that tour of course he's also you know he's wearing makeup um he's 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 he's, he's, he's presenting himself in that androgynous way um yeah. which yeah I'd never really thought of it in that way before but I think I think as you say it definitely does work there's there's some other stuff that's that's a lot less controversial a lot and a lot more readily associated with Dylan on this song as well. Uh, there's that fantastic verse where he says, you've been with the professors and they've all liked your looks. You've been through all of F. Scott Fitzgerald's books. Probably his most scathing takedown of the kind of the value of formal education, I would say. And there's a, there's a lot of uh, competition for that. Yeah, although the, I suppose the irony with that is um, in the book, uh, Why Dylan Matters by Richard F. Thomas, he... Um, <laughs> He talks, he has this chapter about how much of a keen Latin scholar Dylan was at, uh, at high school in Hibbing and uh, the fact that he was a, a member of the Latin club. And um, so he had a very formal kind of classical education. And, uh, and it's interesting. I mean, I I'd also read in this chapter that there were, Latin uh, and classical studies was phenomenally popular in the States. Uh, there were like three quarters of a million applications to study Latin and the classics every year at, at, at uni. And then, then the Eisenhower administration kind of came along and said, no, it's all about maths and science and this is what we're going to do. And so it kind of died on the vine a little bit, really. And so, yeah, Bob Dylan is, is absolutely, you're right, he's been very, very scathing here of formal education, but I think undeniably he was a product of it. So there we go. Who, who would have thought that we couldn't trust what he said? Like, <laughs> <laughs> We had better be moving on. Um, but the one, thing I, one other thing I wanted to raise about this song was that it does have a little bridge or a middle eight in it. One of the episodes of Is It Rolling, Bob, the, the really fantastic Bob Dylan podcast, uh, has a section where they talk about this and how all of a sudden in Blonde on Blonde, every song's got a middle eight, whereas previously they'd been. Yeah, very few. And I wasn't quite sure whether this was the first one of his songs on the records we've looked at that has a middle eight. I couldn't quite think of another one, but it's the only one on this album that does. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it was just quite interesting. In Is It Rolling, Bob, they talk about the influence of the Beatles and the flowering of that kind of mid-60s pop sensibility as being an influence on him. And that might very well be the case, but I just thought it was interesting that he'd, he'd started to do that here. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's the uh, tax deductible charity organisations bit, isn't it? It's, it's when it comes <laughs> yeah. to that. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Beatles and all of all of those beat groups were, you know, they were products of the kind of almost like the Brill building tradition, weren't they really? Where you went verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, then probably like short solo and, and have a chorus. If you really kind of felt out there then maybe you'd do that kind of bang it up a third or truck drivers modulation as uh, as, as they used to use but yeah it, it is interesting that that kind of melodic sensibility i think really comes across here i mean i think that the the melodies on this album i think are pretty fantastic and i think that there's it's it's that we talked last time about how him and the beatles were orbiting each other i mean it's definitely it's filtering through it's percolating isn't it that idea of melody and and I think the other thing is that he he was probably he probably had an awareness of 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 the fact that some of these were were probably radio ish ready and would get played and uh, he was at that point where well actually I might be able to get played if I'm going to feature on the pop charts or whatever then maybe I'll be and and so that that 
that perhaps explains why he's throwing in stuff like that. Yeah. Okay then. So next up is is of course Highway sixty one, the uh, the song itself. Well, it isn't. You're you're, you're missing one. Am I? Oh, am I jumping ahead? Oh, I am. Jumping ahead, mate. Okay, We've got well, Queen Jane approximately, haven't we? We have, yes. <laughs> and I know this is uh, this is one you've got some strong feelings on, Rich. It is. I love this song. Absolutely adore it. And I just, I think when I was a kid, certainly this, I, I think the thing that struck me about this was that I always thought of it as being a love song. But I loved the way that the verses were. I mean, when I was certainly younger, you'd, you'd listen to a love song and it would be all kind of. I love you, you love me, blah, 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 isn't it great, etc., etc. Whereas I think what I loved about this as a kid was that you had these verses that just had mad imagery, as everything does in this, on, the, on this album, and then cut to this really quite romantic chorus, and then you're off again on some kind of bizarre tangent. And yeah, I loved it. And I also love the fact that the guitar is clearly out of tune. Um, and, and I do like that because, I mean, I, I came from a, quite a punk music background, so I, I actually salute that, uh, the fact that they left that on. And in addition to that, I, I just think it, it, it kind of underlines that idea of the energy, the immediacy. It's like everything, everything on this is, you, you can feel the excitement. It's just like, no, I haven't got time for that. No time for tuning guitars forget that let's just play and hit record and keep going etc etc but yeah i love it i mean i think going back again to this idea of melody this is a great great melody and it's just a i think it's a really pretty song and yeah what do you reckon it is undeniably pretty i i do enjoy it i kind of feel though that you know let's remember that according to the official bible at the top 1000 albums of all time this album is supposed to be at number two i don't think you can get away with an out-of-tune guitar if you're if you're putting out the second best album of all time i'm not having that i don't i think it's a flaw that i'm not prepared to live with but i do i i I knew what i was thinking about this i knew you were going to say that it's a punk ethic kind of thing and I, i don't have a lot of time for punk so that's probably why we have different views on that but yes i do think it's a lovely melody and I really love the fact that it, it sounds like it's it's rattling along at 100 miles an hour and at any minute the entire edifice might come crumbling down, but it doesn't. And it's just held together by the force of personality and the drive of all these musicians who've just got it and are going to ride it to wherever it ends up. I just wish the guitar had been in tune. It's as simple as that. <laughs> You're not going to let that one go, are you? That's a, the, the, but there is, yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a real, there's a tension, isn't there? Because it does feel ever so slightly i suppose unhinged but i think we we've, we've got to think about as well the arrangement on this one because i mean the the mix of the piano part and the guitar part and the and the, the arrangement actually is not just great on this it's the the arrangements are great on all of these songs really i mean the musicianship is 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 pretty peerless on this and so the other thing other than force of personality propelling this one along at fair old clip i think is is just the the quality of musicianship and again they managed to make it sound really quite pretty but as you said also with this kind of um idea of it falling apart at the same time there's a kind of ragged prettiness if that makes sense to it and uh and i really like that i mean again it's writing love songs weren't wasn't a new idea writing love songs like this certainly was a new idea but writing with this sort of arrangement and this kind of drive and this sort of like slightly unhinged feel i think is very very new and again i think it it gives it a real sense of originality yeah and the other thing that i wanted to touch on in relation to this song is this is the third song on the album where you've 
he's set as a little riddle as to who he's talking about. So you've obviously got Mr. Jones, you've got Miss Lonely in Like a Rolling Stone, and now we've got Queen Jane. Um, I think probably the people who've been suggested as being the most likely candidates for this are Joan Baez and Andy Warhol again. And I I, kind of, kind of, bought into Warhol a little bit when I listened to this again this time, just with that sense of, uh, you know, all the hangers on and everything just gradually grinding down to, you know, the brass tacks and it's all going to fall down eventually. And then you're going to be coming back to the, the narrator of the song. But that could equally well apply to Joan. And he had spoken about her in that way. So it doesn't really matter who it's about, does it? But it's just, just interesting that he does have those, those three very famous mystery subjects of his songs on this album. Who was uh, who was Sweet Jane on the Velvet Underground song? You know, Velvet Underground, Sweet Jane. That was, I don't was know. That about a Warhol hanger on because I mean, I mean, again, I'm just yeah. I'd I'd not thought of this before. I'd I'd, I'd really not um, considered it. So I don't think I'd, I'd I'd ever thought how much Warhol had probably influenced him because that's what they used to say about Lou Reed. Lou Reed kind of. I think was a bit dismissive of Warhol in the first instance because he couldn't understand why anyone who clearly didn't have a mean bone in their body w- w- was able to do these kind of wild and wacky things. And, and I think Warhol's genius was just the way that he he influenced people to do things, but with like a smile on his face, and it all seemed very very subtle. And who knows? I mean, he Bob Dylan might well have. Uh, kind of fallen under that same kind of spell but yeah if, if you're thinking about it in that kind of in in those sort of terms with a, a kind of factory hanger on subject matter then queen jane takes on a quite a different meaning really doesn't it and the, there's a whole well th- this is it again we, we talked about how with both the immortal bard and also with dylan you can you can apply their their ideas and their songs to all of these different scenarios and that totally changes the meaning, doesn't it? And I think that's the beauty of it, because you can come back to this in 20 years' time, 50 years' time, and, and probably read it as being something totally different. I mean, the richness of, of, this, of it is incredible, isn't it? And it's, it's by no means close to being the richest song on the album, but it's still got all of that in it, which is why we're still talking about this album now. Yeah. Well, we're still talking about it because we've committed to talking about every single Bob Dylan <laughs> album, but why other people are still talking about it? <laughs> Shall we? Um, shall we roll on to Highway yeah, Sixty One? Definitely. So, I mean, Highway Sixty One. It's just. I think it's just a wonderful metaphor, really. I mean, Highway Sixty One. We'll talk about the cover slightly later of, of the album. That is um, for a whole variety of reasons. But Highway Sixty One. Apparently, he had to really fight tooth and nail um, right the way up the chain of command at uh, Columbia to get them to actually allow him to call the album this and i think that this is it's so important that it is called this because if you're thinking about it as this metaphor you've got the you've got the highway haven't you that that goes all the way from minnesota i think they've renamed parts of it now but it used to go all the way from minnesota right the way down through the delta the kind of home of the blues and stuff like that and i i just love the idea of this kind of adolescent bob dylan thinking goodness me, I'm stuck up here in the uh, the frozen wastelands of the north. But this kind of artery goes all the way right down through the home of the blues. It goes to places like Memphis and it goes all the way down into Mississippi. And it's almost like I've just got to kind of plug into that and, and um, I'm being influenced by all of these kind of uh, 
like blues singers, etc., etc. And I mean that it's incredible, isn't it? It's so poetic, it's so powerful, and this is the thing really I think that links it with like a stepping stone in kind of American music history as much as anything. Yeah, and the thing that strikes me about this song every time is that we're back again with Bob in humorous mode. It is hilarious throughout, although the humour's a lot more pointed than it is on something like 115th Dream and I Shall Be Free, but it's still there and it's still just as effective. And that first verse, it's it's literally leaving me speechless now, even after I've prepared to talk about it on a podcast. I mean, unbelievable. An astonishing opening to a song. But the thing that I wanted to pick up about that is not just the audacity of the the way he presents the story of Abraham and and the way he relocates it into the Midwest, but the fact that he does it in this this hipster argo, this this kind of, all of a sudden he's now no longer adopting the cloak of Woody Guthrie or Jack Elliott or any of those people who used to speak like that. Now he's speaking like this. And he didn't invent that way of talking, of course, but he's he's owning it and he's, he's adopting it and he's promulgating it just as effectively as he did that kind of Midwestern folksy style that he had only 18 months previously. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, I agree. I've not got a massive amount more to add on that other than it really works incredibly well with that hipster speak. There have been those, because his father was called Abraham, wasn't he? I think I'm right in saying. Mm. So there have been. Yeah, he was. You've read into that. I mean, but as with all of these songs, you could you could read almost infinite kind of interpretations into them, uh, couldn't you? Um, all right. So I was listening to just like Tom Thumbs Blues earlier on. And one thing that had never occurred to me before was how cool the percussion was on it, the kind of shakers and stuff like that. And again, I think I've got a slightly cleaned up version that I've been listening to. But again, it just sort of shows, I think, coming back to this idea of the arrangements, they are so, so good. But I am, I'm going to leave you to talk pretty much about this one because I just like this very much as a song. And I think that, the, again, the piano is fantastic in it. But um, yeah, over to you. What, what are we thinking? Yeah, I mean, as I say, this was my the first Bob Dylan album I listened to. Like a Rolling Stone, of course, was familiar from the greatest hits. Desolation Row, <laughs> we're going to come on to. I mean, crikey. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a clear highlight. But this was the one that really grabbed me completely unexpectedly. You know, I don't know if you used to do this, Rich, but when I used to get a physical copy of an album, particularly one that I'd coveted for a while, I'd look at the cover and then I'd look at the track listing and I'd be scanning down and I'd be looking at the titles and I'd be thinking, oh, yeah, that sounds like it's going to be a good song, just from a title, you know. And when I was doing that with this one, I had absolutely no expectation of a song called Just Like Tom Thumbs Blues. What on earth is that possibly going to be about? And everything about it is just absolutely mind-blowing, or at least it was to me at the time. And, I, and it, it remains so after so many repeated listens. So you've got the, the instrumentation, as you say. It's a magnificent performance, and it's so gorgeous i mean as a as a as a rock performance as a melody as an arrangement it's just stunning um and the uh, the, the singing as well sorry i'll just butt in there for a moment the singing on this i think is as good as he gets on this album as well i just the magnificent the kind of nuances it's amazing back to you <laughs> yeah absolutely no, no, by all means yeah jump in i mean i couldn't agree more i think in terms of the songwriting we're still very much in the that vein that we were in with tombstone blues you've got you've got more of a narrative here for sure and you've got that payoff of him going back to new york city which makes it and again i think that's part of it it makes it a much 
more pleasant song to listen to, even though it's extremely dark in a lot of places. And perhaps the intention wasn't for it to be a happy ending. <laughs> but but to me as a teenager, it certainly felt like a happy ending. So I'll I'll run with that. Um, but yeah, you've got this this string of incredible images which lend themselves to build up this picture and this this ambience. And the way he starts off with the setting in Juarez, and I don't think I even knew where Juarez was when I first heard this song but it didn't matter you were you were there you can you can feel what those streets are like you've got the heat of the night surrounding you it's an incredible effect that comes from the accumulation of the verses and from his the power of his performance you, you couldn't have it without both of those things being absolutely at the top of his game i mean yeah without doubt this would still be my highlight of the entire album i think you can say for sure that Like a Rolling Stone and Desolation Row are objectively better songs, and I will have no argument with anybody who wants to claim that either of them are the highlights of the album. But for me personally, this is right up there. Absolutely astonishing. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got nothing really to add on that other than it's, it is, it's a great, great song. I mean, I think Like a Rolling Stone, going back to what you just said, almost kind of suffers from the blowing in the wind thing in that it's so ubiquitous. It's almost kind of become part of our dna kind of thing it's you, you almost don't think of it as a song it's just accepted as a as a thing as an entity isn't it but yeah this this one's a this one is a a, a great great song i mean i didn't know about i didn't know about juarez when i first listened to it either and again that made very very little difference i think to my my enjoyment of it yeah and i think going back to what we talked about a very long time ago at the start of this conversation it was I, I was aware enough as a 17 year old that discovering like a rolling stone and liking it was not a particularly individual thing to do and i think i wasn't aware that this song was so celebrated then and it really felt like i discovered something that nobody else in my world knew about and there was this thing that was just absolutely incredible that was mine and i think that probably is part of the emotional attachment i still have to it even though <laughs> I'm, a, I'm over that particular <laughs> attachment to it now. But one thing I did just want to pick up on as well uh, about this was something that we'll probably come back to on Blonde on Blonde, um, because listening to it this time, I noticed that he's he's got so many named female characters in this song, hasn't he? And it's not just that he's throwing in names at random. Well, not at random, but apparently at random, like he does on Tombstone Blues and arguably Desolation Row. He's got these these little vignettes built around Melinda, Angel, St. Annie. And he does that a lot more on Blonde on Blonde. And I don't think he'd really done that before. The female characters in his previous songs, they weren't named for the most part, even though we can often guess who they might be. And they're very much, I think, objects of affection in the kind of traditional male songwriter sense. So he's either writing love songs or he's writing anti-love songs. But even in the anti-love songs, he's talking about a female who has either annoyed him, rejected him, or betrayed him, or that he's done one of those things too. Um, so you're still in that kind of quite traditional way of thinking about songwriting and the way you're portraying uh, women within your, within your music. And this is something that's different. And I think he, he develops it a lot more on, on Blonde on Blonde. But I thought it was interesting that on this song, it's probably the first time that you start seeing that. And I wondered if that's tied into this this more general shift in his songwriting approach that we we've already talked about. Yeah, I mean, I think on those earlier albums, he's he's very much kind of piggybacking on the the folk tradition, isn't he? It's it's that kind of um, he's writing in a kind of more stylized way where it could kind of apply to anyone. I suppose, arguably, naming 
women is a maybe slightly more confessional way of songwriting, which arguably then feeds into the sort of singer-songwriter movement of the 1970s, even though he's not in any way wearing his heart on his sleeve here, and it's, it's veiled in any number of masks and huge kind of um, degrees of ambiguity. But it is, it, it's a definite shift, isn't it? Talking about ambiguity, though, we probably ought to, to hitch our wagons to Desolation Row. Um, on, um, on Twitter this, uh, this last couple of weeks, um, we had some quite interesting reactions about favourite songs on this, on this album. Jerry Close, um, for example, also shares my view that Desolation Row is probably, if not the highlight, then certainly one of the standout tracks on this. I mean, we, we differ in our kind of <laughs> take on this, I think it's fair to say. Heads or tails, do you want to start off with your take on it? Go on, I'll, I'll give you a quick, uh, a quick okay. rundown. Well, I should I only think the imaginary coin and it landed in your favour. There we go. <laughs> yeah, it rhymed with Desolation Row. Um, yeah, well, I think first of all, quite obviously, we're still in the realms of the picture song uh, that we've talked about, the sort of the Tombstone Blues effect is still very much to the fore here isn't it and those characters which are not so well developed as they are in other songs but they're they're adding something texturally i think to the the picture he's building up but but the thing i just wanted to flag was that i I can't quite remember where i heard this i've got a feeling it was on a bulletin board in the early days of the internet but i do i do remember somebody suggesting that you can interpret this song as as a series of references to the Holocaust. And when you sit down with that in mind, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. You've, you've got the passports being painted brown at the start, beauty parlour being filled with sailors. I mean, this is quite, you, you can link that to Nazi Germany in the 1930s quite directly, I think. But then you've got these other things later on. So Einstein disguised as Robin Hood, you know, you had that exodus of Jewish intellectuals and, and Jewish people generally as the 30s went on. And of course, the great irony being that the atom bomb was discovered, well, was designed in America largely on the back of some of the Jewish physicists who'd been ostracized by uh, Nazi Germany. And then you've got those horrendously uh, affecting verses about the heart attack machines. What is it? You've got the riot squad at the start. I and mean, then what is it at the end where the people are coming down um, to round up everybody? I've, I've forgotten what it is. But uh, oh, there's the there's a, there's a, crew that coming around the That's it. Yes, 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 yes. That's it, isn't it? If you start looking at all the verses, I'm sure you can find other examples. But it's something that's, that was what he had in his mind to write. I'm sure it wasn't. But I wonder if it was in the back of his mind have been alluding to. It's possible. But I, regardless of that, it certainly has that effect. I think that, that works and, and it adds to the power of it for me. But what are your thoughts? What I think when it comes to this one is I see, I mean... Woody Guthrie did the song Jesus Christ, which of course was over, I think it was two sides of an LP. So this isn't the first very long song, first kind of narrative song, even though it's not really a narrative. I see this though as being far more kind of in the the sort of modernist poetry tradition, really. I think, I mean, we've already mentioned Ginsberg. I think this, there's a lot of howl in this. And I also think there's a lot of kind of T.S. Eliot. I mean, it's, it's like the wasteland kind of imagery and the, you could also say like the, the love song of um, J. Alfred Prufrock, the idea of the person walking through this kind of quite dystopian, disturbing city. There's also, I, 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 it reminds me of the Shield of Achilles as well, the poem by Auden, which 
isn't isn't strictly modernist okay but it's it, it sort of works in that kind of sense where you've got lots of different images from lots of different points in time in history that are all kind of juxtaposed at each other and they all become a bit alarming and so I've I've never really thought of it in the kind of interpretation that you said about I've always thought of it as being far more a case of just this mishmash again kind of the, which which I know is the is the word that I've used quite a few times in this instance and so I've never really tried to kind of get to the bottom of it. One of the things that I would say, though, is that a mate of mine years ago, he used to talk about the line, uh, and she puts her hands in her back pockets, Betty Davis style. And he used to say, that's like a story in itself, that line. It's this idea that you, you it wouldn't matter if you did or you didn't know who Betty Davis was. You could just kind of picture that in your own mind. And I think that that's, that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I mean, what a song. It's just astonishing. And the guitar playing on it is beautiful as well. I mean, the guitar playing is absolutely uh, perfect, I think, for this. I think famously there was an electric part that was recorded for this, but I think that the acoustic part works, the kind of sort of sub-flamenco part works really, really well. In in um, Robert Shelton's book, he talks about the uh, flamenco-style guitar, and he says it it begins by adding a brightness and a counterpoint to the verse, but as it goes on it ends up just reinforcing the the bleakness through the repetition of the figure and i thought that was a beautifully put way of explaining it and and of course he, he famously plays it in in scintillating style on his 66 tour where you have these almost entirely silent auditoriums just hanging on every single word we're, we're not going to say anything new about the lyrics to this i don't think but the the fact that he's got is it 10 verses and he, each one is a is a novel in microcosm, isn't it? They're all so perfectly formed. I've heard people say that they're there's a little a little disappointed with the last one and all the stuff about the doorknob and all that and it not being quite up to the the mark given the imagery on the previous ones. But I, I find I find it a, 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 an interesting ending and I, I I do I do appreciate that that final verse. Yeah. The other verse, but always affecting me from the start, and and that it reminds me also plays into the Holocaust thing is the, is the one about Doctor Filth and his nurse and the, the allusions towards the experiments on his patients. The incredibly disturbing, such an astonishing song, and and you don't need any interpretation to be affected by it on your first listen, as you say. But then you do have these myriad interpretations which you can lay onto it later. Staggering, absolutely staggering. We're probably about time to wrap it up now. I agree with all of the things that you just said about this i mean we talk about highlights we talk about lowlights from my own point of view i'll just very quickly i've already mentioned it buick six would be my my low light probably not because it's a bad song but just because the company it keeps it's not as good as and my highlights i i'm gonna put i'm gonna say queen jane actually on this occasion what about you mark push came to shove well i'd go with uh, just like tom thumbs blues as the highlight um, and just thinking about that and Queen Jane, of course, they were recorded in the same session, weren't they? I think Tom Thumb came first and Queen Jane came afterwards. And that did make me think about the out of tune guitar, because I think it's probably Dylan who's playing the out of tune guitar. And I wondered if he'd done what I have done on numerous occasions, which is where you lean your guitar against the wall and you might even bang into it on your way to get a cigarette or something. And that's what knocks it out of tune. <laughs> so that's my theory. That's my contribution to Dylanology for the uh, the podcast 
low light as a song i'd go with um from a buick six definitely but yeah. my main low light is that guitar on queen jane i'm not having any of that sorry you can take your punk aesthetic and, and put it where the sun don't shine the only other thing i wanted to flag was the cover i think it's atrocious but it's in good company isn't it uh, i was thinking about this this morning you've got so many fantastic albums with really terrible covers and there's this fetishization of album art isn't there particularly from the 70s and into the early 80s where you've got blokes like us in fairness um waxing lyrical about their favorite album covers but there are far more fantastic albums with awful covers i just came up this morning with pet sounds automatic for people all things must pass uh, and the notorious birds brothers although that might be saved by the fact that the horse supposedly replaced David Crosby, which if that's true, <laughs> is fantastic. But nevertheless, it's still a terrible cover. So I'm going to go with the guitar on Queen Jane and the cover as my lowlights. But yeah. it's about time for us to wrap up, isn't it? So, um, so yeah. So your... I mean, we normally do last thoughts, last thoughts on an album. I mean, the only thing that I would say for this one is that this was my first Bob Dylan album. It's still my favourite. It's still the best, I think, as a body of songs. Certainly, it's just pretty magical. Your last, so- your last, uh, last thoughts. Well, I'm going to go slightly off piste, but I'll come back to the point as quickly as I can. So in the week that we've been doing this, it was the 50th anniversary of Blue, Joni Mitchell's Blue. And there's been a lot of fantastic coverage, which I'm sure anybody who stumbled across this podcast will have enjoyed tremendously. But one of the things that annoyed me ever so slightly was that you, you do tend to get on social media this sniping sometimes about oh, Bob Dylan was a better songwriter. No, Joni Mitchell was a better songwriter. She was also a better singer, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which you don't need, do you? I mean, you, you know, you can appreciate these people uh, for the geniuses they are without any of that. But it made me just reflect on Bob Dylan's relationship to his peers. And what I think is that this album, this moment, was the time when he was undoubtedly light years ahead of anybody else. So just thinking about it, you know, we're in 1965 we're still a year away from revolver or a year away from pet sounds the velvet underground hadn't really gotten going the band of course hadn't even started playing with dylan yet country rock had not been invented psychedelic rock acid rock it was in its infancy all this stuff that we associate with the the kind of a key revolutions of uh, 60s pop they hadn't even started and yet here is bob dylan with this album like a Rolling Stone, Desolation Row, alone, he's reinvented what it means to be a musician, what it means to be a cultural figure in the 20th century. Nobody else is within a country mile of him. And I think he absolutely stands alone at this point. And that's what I think this album represents. I still think I might prefer Blonde on Blonde, but by that time, people had caught up with him. He wasn't quite as far ahead as he had been. Here, he just stands alone as the genius that posterity identifies him as. Absolutely. Join us next time when we will be discussing Blonde on Blonde. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Please do follow us on Twitter. Uh, We tweet via at Dylan American and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.